Hi everyone, and a very warm welcome to this conversation with Andy Holding, Chief Economist at the Bank of England. Just before we kick off, let me um, get in the um, mandatory housekeeping arrangements. Do send your questions in as early as you like, and for some of you that's already, and thanks, I can see them coming. If you want to include your name or where you're viewing from, that's great. We always like to know, and it actually helps the context of it. You can post your questions in the Q&A on the right of your screen. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFG economy. Please do follow and tweet along. And we're going to have a video and sound recording of the event on our website within 24 hours, as well as a link to a speech I'm going to refer to that Andy Haldane is not a speech, a, a final uh, paper that Andy Haldane has uh, put together on his 30 years at the bank. Well, with that, let me say he needs very little introduction, but Andy Haldane has, as you know, been chief economist at the Bank of England since 2014, part of a career of more than 30 years at the bank. Today is we, we built it as his last day in post, which was what we thought when we began this discussion, actually in the way of these gradual e exits that have become very modish. It isn't quite. It's his last day on the Monetary Policy Committee, and he's just extracted himself from that meeting to come here. Um, he's taking up a new position as Chief Executive of the Royal Society for Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce in September. We're much looking forward to see, seeing what he makes of that. In his time at the bank, he's led I mean, lots of the key things that it has done, and we were going to be talking about that, but in particular work on monetary analysis and financial stability. And he's also acted as chair of the government's Industrial Strategy Council since it was set up in 2018 and uh, has also founded the charity Pro Bono Economics, aiming to help the charitable sector with its economics. Andy, a very warm welcome. Bronwyn, thank you for that lovely introduction and very nice to, to be here. Let's let's get straight into it because I can see the questions flooding in. I wanted to start with coronavirus, which um, is almost inescapable. And in this um, paper you've put together, um, which which I can plug uh, many, many times over, it's called 30 Years of Hurt, Never Stop Me Dreaming, which you will recognise is from the Three Lions song, um, though Andy then explains he is not actually hurting after 30 years, um, a very thoughtful account of things. You, you, you say various, you make various points about where coronavirus has taken us, both in terms of economic stability and then in the, the banking system. I want to come on to both of those. But if you just look at the this past astonishing year, um, what how would you explain to someone who was not immersed in economics where, about where coronavirus has left the economy? Hmm. Well, it's um, I mean, the use the word and president has used a lot and has been used a lot in the last um, 16, 17 months. Um, but plainly, we've seen an economic shock alongside the health shock that has had few, if any, historical presidents, you know, as much as a 25% in the UK peak to trough collapse in activity. And even more unusually, you know, that, that collapse was very largely policy induced, you know, of necessity to get our arms around the health uh, crisis, hitting both the economy's demand side uh, and its supply side uh, simultaneously. I think you know, in some ways as extraordinary as the shock has been the policy response to that shock, again of necessity, with uh, all guns blazing on both the fiscal and the monetary front, both in the UK 
uh, and indeed uh, globally. If you scour the history books, which I periodically do, you are hard pressed to find an event, uh, one of this scale, but two that's elicited such a double barreled response from policy, both fiscal uh, and uh, monetary. So it's an event that has few, if any, precedents. It's a policy response that has few, if any, precedents. And therefore, the uncertainty about what happens, happens next has Bronwyn of necessity got to be pretty got to be pretty acute and if nothing else as policymakers we need to uh, act with a, a hefty dose of humility uh, when it comes to forecasting you know the path from here and the path from here we've got we've had this enormous fiscal response the government spending a lot of money being very prepared to run up debt let's just start with that um there's debate going on within government indeed within the country about how much we should be worried about debt and deficits. What do you make of that? Well, I think the debate very helpfully has has um, moved quite a long way in what is historic and economic terms, a relatively short space of time. So the orthodoxy around all matters fiscal um, at a global level has, uh, has really gone through, if not 180, then a fairly sharp 90 degree uh, turn in the period since the global financial crisis. So back then, there were, as uh, everyone on the call will know, uh, concerns about the debt stock getting too large uh, and therefore the uh, fiscal cost proving uh, too big. Um, that was then. Uh, as of now, uh, I think quite helpfully, there's somewhat less of a focus on aggregate debt stocks, whether it's government debt stocks or uh, more broadly relative to GDP, and a somewhat greater focus, Bronwyn, on the costs of servicing that debt. Because of course, of the same period, you know, of the last 18 months when the debt stock has picked up very materially for reasons we all know very well, uh, the cost of servicing that debt has actually been falling. That is to say, the cut uh, in government bond yields has more than neutralized the pickup in the debt stock, leaving debt servicing, uh, if anything, a bit lower than it was uh, pre-COVID. That should give us a degree of comfort and greater focus on debt servicing as well as debt stocks. So I think a helpful development when it comes to figuring out how much uh, fiscal space we have. Now, all of that comes with a caveat. It's a pretty important caveat which is that um, a higher debt stock does mean that debt servicing costs are somewhat more sensitive to a rise in interest rates now than in uh, the past. And that is a point of, uh, point of caution uh, about this new fiscal orthodoxy. But nonetheless, I think overall, where we are in terms of worldwide thinking on fiscal space, feels more comfortable um, or more sensible, I would say, um, now than might have been the case at points in the past. That's really interesting the way you put it. I mean, you can see why it's the this kind of about turn in economic policy and fiscal in, uh, in approaches to, to debt um, baffles many people. Um, the kind of wider public. What was all the point of that austerity, uh, which uh, is now attached to George Osborne's name forever? 
um, if economists have now come to realize um, that uh, interest rates, in fact, were not going to be so high and we, we could have, um, we could get away with more. I mean, I think you, you put it very well, but it is a point um, that, that leads people, I think, to be mystified about big turns in public policy. Is that something you think governments ought to do more to communicate? Well, I mean, we all learn from experience um, and we should learn from experience. And one of the um, lessons, the most important lessons in public policy that you must learn is, is not to repeat the errors of the past. Um, you can't prevent yourself making uh, errors in the, in, in, in the present because you're acting in a position of often acute uncertainty. Um, and I should say, I think we have learned some of our uh, errors of the past. I think without the global financial crisis, Bronwyn, mm. of 10, 12 years ago, the response this time around wouldn't be, would have, wouldn't have been anything like as, as rapid and wouldn't have been anything like as large as we have seen. I think having flexed our policy muscles in the relatively recent past, that lived experience among the policy community has come in actually very helpful. Although, although this time shock was very different uh, in its source, uh, in its scale and severity, it had some similarities. Mm. And that meant both monetary and fiscal policy, I think were this time more fleet of foot. They went in quicker, they went in larger. I think without that, the outcomes we're seeing now, which is a pretty rapid recovery, the foundations of those of that recovery would not have been anything like as strong. Really interesting point, which I'll come back to. Um, I want to come back to some things that we learned from the financial crisis. But if we just stay on where we are now and turn to inflation, which you've been writing, writing and speaking quite a lot about, and and you, um, you spend quite a bit of time on it in this uh, paper that you've just put out, which I'm now thinking of as your Three Lions paper. Um, where do you think we are? You've been you've been you've been warning a lot about, about this. You, you had this big lot of uh, government government spending, a lot of private savings all built up because people haven't been able to uh, spend anything now that they're beginning to. And you've been warning about the risk of inflation. How should we assess this? Well, I mean, you mentioned three lines. I haven't thought of that metaphor. I wish I had actually, Bromen, I haven't borrowed that one, um, but I'll borrow it now because there are, the in there. <laughs> um, there are three lines causing the economy to roll back right now. Um, yeah. And one is the natural effects of opening up the economy, you know, as businesses open up, as people return to work, as they return to shopping and spending and, and, and socializing, we'd expect a natural bounce back in the economy. That's why I was I was always pretty confident we'd see an atypically rapid recovery, um, having had that atypically sharp uh, collapse in the first place. And that indeed is what is now happening before our eyes. And it's even in the GDP numbers as well. But and of course, you have, that you have stuck your neck out over the past year and, and said this as people have been going on about V's and W's and K-shaped recoveries and so on. Yeah, I've tried in, in general to avoid the alphabet soup, although not entirely successfully. Um, but for me, that was always, you know, more likely than not, given the nature of the the, the initial hit that we uh, that we took. But that's not all that's going on. That's only one of uh, the motive forces behind the economy right now, one of those lines. There are two others really important ones, one public, one private. The public one is that relative to the pre-COVID position, of course, both fiscal and monetary policies are materially more accommodative than they were uh, back then. The economy isn't just bouncing back to base. That more accommodative stance of both fiscal and monetary means we should expect, we should naturally expect, a bounce back above base 
given where the fiscal stance is, 50% of GDP fiscal deficit, and given where the monetary stance is, 50% of GDP more QE than was the case uh, 15 months uh, or so ago. And the third lion is the private sector lion, which is to say that pool of savings that both households and companies have accumulated involuntarily during the crisis as a result of the restrictions on spending. Uh, and that's, you know, for households well north of 200 billion, for companies well north of 100 billion of savings ready to be used. And as best we can tell, is now being used as unemployment falls, as the risk of losing your job uh, reduces, many more people are putting their pool of savings to work. They're buying cars, they're buying houses, uh, they're buying patio heaters, they're buying uh, beer and meals in restaurants. And that provides an extra reason why I would expect the bounce back to not just to be base, to be, to be somewhat above base. And above base, Bronwyn, for these purposes, means an aggregate uh, excess demand, not little pockets of excess demand, the like of which we've seen so far, but at the economy-wide level, too much money chasing too much goods, and Economics 101 tells us what happens when too much money chases too few goods, and that, that we're now seeing. Yeah. Um, so you're giving an early warning now. You, you spent a lot of weight in this uh, this paper about saying, look, much better to act early. What What should we do about it? Well, um, I think the lesson for me from our history, both recent uh, and distant, uh, is that um, inflation, um, it always starts localised, always starts looking temporary, um, but that can often, without due care and attention, be the thin end of a thick wedge, where the thick edge is that those localised price pressures turn into generalised price pressures, those temporary spikes in prices more into more persistent rises uh, in prices that that causes people's expectations for inflation uh, to begin to nudge up or perhaps even uh, shift uh, up those that's that's a cumulative process an evolutionary process that we've seen time and again through history and the key takeaway policy wise is to nip that process uh, in the bud. As soon as the cat is out of the bag, getting the cat back into the bag uh, is jolly hard work. And it's only secured then by central banks, monetary policymakers having to play catch up, having mm. to raise rates somewhat faster or somewhat further than people were expecting. And that, to be honest, um, Bronwyn, is the last thing anyone needs right now. You know, you mentioned that we've all now emerged. We all now are now emerging, I hope, from this COVID crisis, scarred by, from the experience, not least in debt terms for a great many households, a great many governments and a great many companies. And that means um, the last thing we want from a recovery perspective is having to slam on the monetary policy brakes somewhat harder than people are currently expecting. That would be a very nasty surprise to a great many mortgage holders, a great many corporate borrowers, indeed a great many 
governments and part because of our job. Been, as you've been describing, we've been in an era of cheap money for really quite a long time now, while all kinds of people and businesses have made life-changing decisions, you know, big, big decisions of development. So they're used to these, um, is cheap money and the reversal um, would be quite a shock. I think it would catch people unawares. Yeah. Um, it is the case that many borrowers now do not have a rise in borrowing costs in their lived experience. And that increases the chances that that would be a, not just a surprise, but a rather nastier surprise uh, than we'd planned. So you, whether you are a, you know, a God-fearing central bank with an inflation target that's been missed, uh, or a company whose borrowing costs are, rise, uh, are rising, or a household whose mortgage costs are rising and cost of living is rising, or a government whose debt servicing costs are rising. You know, inflation is a plague on all of our houses. And mm. it's therefore important that we, if at all possible, as early as possible, do our bit um, to to nip it in the bud. You know, a stitch in a stitch in time really can save nine mm. when it comes to that inflationary process. There's no guarantees here. I don't want to imply that anyone could say with any certainty that inflation will go through the gears. But given where we are, it's a risk. It's a risk that's rising and it's not a risk that's worth taking if you're a central bank. I was really struck by the way you describe inflation targeting as one of the big successes um, of the past 30 years. It's obviously something that you've spent a lot of time working on and that you're now warning people could potentially be at risk. Yeah, I think the, the words I use in, uh, thanks for thanks for um, flagging that paper, by the way. Um, um, and I mentioned this as being, you know, I was there at the inception of inflation targeting, and this feels like the most dangerous moment for that regime in, in its in its history since '92, um, for the reasons, many of the reasons I've set out uh, just now, really, um, really Bromwin, that that expectations um, of inflation feel more fragile. I mean, in financial markets, they're higher. Than they have been uh, for a decade. Uh, I think at the moment financial markets have given central banks the benefit of the doubt. I'm very pleased that they have, but I wouldn't want those doubts to rise because that increases the chances of inflation expectations themselves rising uh, and where they lead borrowing costs uh, then uh, follow. So, you know, that's the sense in which um, now is the time to underscore the commitment to that inflation target and produce, therefore, the fragility and expectations that our fear has picked up over the last month or two. You were talking earlier about lessons that we'd learned from the financial crisis, or at least things that, that it had made us better at doing. And you've talked about global banking actually being part of the solution. Um, when coronavirus hit as opposed to part of the problem. Where are we on that? You've been very involved in the re response to that crisis in terms of bank regulation. Um, should we feel safe? I think we should. I think, you know, relative to where we were, maybe this is cold comfort, uh, 10, 12 years ago, um, the system in the UK and, and, and globally uh, is on much steadier legs, on a much more robust foundations than was the case right Um right back then, whether it's levels of capital in the system or levels of liquidity in the system, they've they've gone through the gears. 
and now put us in a much more robust spot. And that meant when the COVID crisis struck, there was enough uh, money in the bank, uh, was literally and metaphorically, um, to be lent out um, to support households, to support uh, businesses, and therefore to support the economy. In other words, the complete flip side of where we found ourselves at the time of the global financial crisis. So I think that regulatory reform effort, which wasn't always uh, lauded, I can tell you, um, mm. has shown its worth in situations of stress. And of course, it's in situations of stress that those regulatory reforms do come into their own uh, and have. Now, is this job done? Uh, no, it's not, because although, uh, you know, millions, um, over a million loans have been made, for example, to SMEs during the COVID crisis in a way that wasn't true during the global financial crisis. The tr truth be told, those loans would not have been made without, or many of them wouldn't have been made without a 100% uh, guarantee from governments. So this crisis, although much better managed by the financial sector than uh, 10, 12 years ago, still exposed some fault lines, particularly on the SME lending side, actually long-standing fault lines on the SME financing side that I'd love to see more durably closed after this crisis has abated. That SME fault line in financing remains to be bridged and I'd love looking forward if it could be bridged with some more effective institutional bridge that we've had for the last hundred years or so I'd say. Thanks for that. Let's turn to productivity. You've spent a lot of time looking at industrial strategy and the problems of, of Britain's productivity um, in, in the years we've just been talking about. What is your view about how to use this recovery from coronavirus to do something about that? Yeah, two elements to that, uh, Bronwyn. You're right. We went through a very unusual um, more than decade long period after the global financial crisis of productivity flatlining. Um, again, scouring the history books, it's hard to find a similar such episode um, since the Industrial Revolution. So that's how unusual it was. Um, there have been signs during the COVID crisis um, of progress, not the least of which, of course, was the fact that many of us of necessity during the crisis were acquired to get ourselves match fit digitally. Um, that's true of a whole bunch of businesses. Uh, an investment in digital by companies uh, has picked up very materially over the course of the last 18 months or so, as best we can tell. Although overall business investment has contracted sharply, spending on digital uh, has really gone through the gears. And that ought to deliver some longer term benefit, we hope. And of course, accompanying that, we've seen many more people, many more workers, probably even including you and I, Bronwyn, have had to brush up our digital skills. So we've had both kit and both skills um, being given a leg up by the COVID crisis. Does this give us something on which we can therefore build in a way that would enhance and improve productivity in the future? Well, uh, I hope, uh, I hope so. Um, I also hope that some of the existing uh, government initiatives might provide, you know, further impetus for that improvement. I'm thinking of initiatives, for example, such as the Help to Grow initiative that, that the Chancellor put in place at the time of the budget earlier this year, 
which encourages particularly smaller businesses to make that investment, not just in their digital infrastructure, but as importantly in their management skills. Because the, the biggest reason, the biggest single reason why technology is not adopted or does not work is not because of tech itself, it's because of the skills of those introducing it, in particular, uh, the skills of management. So tackling the technical side of things, the digital side of things, cheek by jowl in a complementary fashion to the human skills, the managerial skills, that for me goes to two of the key Achilles heels of UK PLC, an underinvestment generally, particularly in tech, and an underinvestment uh, in people skills, particularly the managerial. It's really interesting. I want to bring in one question that's um, uh, that's come in, uh, not from anyone named, um, but asking you to expand on your comments uh, which earlier this week about levelling up and something I wanted to ask you about generally. But um, this question says uh, your comments being about levelling up being potentially accelerated by increased remote hybrid working. Yeah, happy to elaborate on that. I mean, this is uh, at the moment can be no more than um, speculation. You don't quite know where activity will uh, will settle, uh, how much working from home will happen, how much migration of businesses out of cities into suburban or rural retreats will happen. Nonetheless, um, if some of those trends at least prove to be more persistent, and that would be my strongly central central view, then both the location uh, uh, of businesses and the location uh, of workers in those businesses will be less tied uh, to our large cities in future than they have been in the past. In other words, what's sometimes called those agglomeration benefits of big cities, economies of scale, economies of scope, won't disappear, but though that degree of magnetic attraction will be somewhat less powerful in future, mm -hmm than it has been in the past, both people and businesses more footloose, and therefore with more activity, uh, more businesses, more workers outside of the main city centres. Uh, mm. That provides suddenly something of a tailwind to the levelling up agenda, having been a fairly obvious uh, headwind to levelling up uh, pre-COVID as businesses, as people, as money, as cultural capital, you're crowded in to our already overall pretty prosperous bigger city centres. Thanks for that. And I suspect there may be more questions on that. I, I want to turn now to the questions properly because a lot are coming in. Um, let me start a completely different angle uh, with one from Katrin uh, Loken from the um, uh, from the DWS saying the Bank of England has taken a leading position in the climate change debate. Why is taking climate change into consideration within the mandate of central banks? It's been there to an extent. Thank you, Catherine, for that question. To an extent, it's been in there, you know, sort of slightly implicit in our mandate uh, for quite some little while. It's, let's take the Monetary Policy Committee on which I sat until about half an hour ago. Um, uh, that has had in its mandate as a secondary part of its objectives, supporting the government's economic policies. And of course, net zero has been part of the government's economic policies for quite some little while now. What happened at the time of the budget this year is that what was previously implicit was then made explicit. The bank was given an avert, if still secondary mandate to support the government's 
uh, leveling up uh, initiatives. Truth be told, the bank had already been over a number of years uh, been doing work in that area, most obviously with the financial services sector, getting them to sit, sit up and pay attention to, and to make transparent the risks they were running in their business by dint of climate change. That's one of the instruments, probably the most potent instrument that we at the Bank of England can pull to affect systemic change, in this case, across the financial system, having them manage properly the climate risks that they were facing. So this is within remit, for me, rightly within remit. Our tools of the trade are small in number, uh, and generally speaking, uh, are, uh, you know, are, aren't going to change the world by themselves. Mm. But can they and should they make a contribution to changing the world? Uh, yes, they have. Uh, yes, they can. And yes, they should to an even greater extent looking forward. So let me take one just on the same subject uh, from the opposite perspective, if you like, um, from Belinda Gordon of the Green Alliance saying, what more can the Bank of England do to make sure the economy delivers no more than one and a half degrees of warming? Well, in terms of what is already being done, um, I mean, the levers we are pulling are those that are at our disposal. And one of those is our own balance sheet. Uh, we ourselves have a balance sheet. We ourselves are a, um, are a financial institution with some risky exposures, not a huge amount of risky exposures. We only have about a portfolio of about 20 billion pounds of private sector assets, of corporate assets. We've already set out a framework of how we are going to green our own portfolio, which even though it's modest, would be a positive step in the right direction and would hopefully act uh, as um, as a catalyst for others to follow suit. We can ask, as we already have, uh, uh, the financial system to get its act together, to understand the risks that they are running and to manage those risks actively. Uh, and one vehicle for doing that will be the new climate stress test we're bringing into play with the financial services sector to make sure they fully understand and are fully understand and are fully uh, managing uh, those climate risks uh, as best they can. And then, of course, as, as our role on the global scene, where we can, alongside of the central banks, alongside of the finance ministries, ensure that the global financial system, not just banks, but crucially the managers of money, asset managers as well, are alert to the risks, managing the risks, and therefore using market prices as an important disincentive device for those using dirty Mm. Uh, fossil fuels and migrating ultimately to the net zero objective that we all hope to to hit sooner rather than later. Thanks for that. Okay, there's one from Andrew Turnbull who says, which is more important, raising interest rates or scaling back quantitative easing? Um, well, I think when it, you know, when it comes to um, uh, the time to tighten policy, to tighten monetary policy, perhaps to nip those inflation risks uh, in the bud. We could move, central banks could move off uh, either foot. Uh, they could do that you know, either by beginning to slim uh, their portfolio of assets, in other words, to turn uh, QE, where the E is easing, into QT, where the T is now tightening, and or they could do that uh, through the more conventional route, if you like, which is to say uh, raising interest rates. That's a debate that the Bank of England is having, that the MPC is having, uh, almost as we 
uh, as we speak. I think the key point is that you know what matters more than this tool or that tool, the left hand or the right hand, is what the overall stance, QE and interest rates together, getting that right, putting that in the right place to land uh, the inflation uh, target, if it were me, which as of now it's not. Uh, I think you're know, taking seriously the size of our balance sheet, of the Bank of England's balance sheet, of central banks' balance sheets generally, is very important. Um, you know, I, I'm very open with you, Bronwyn. I feel uncomfortable, hard not to feel uncomfortable with a balance sheet that by the end of this year on current plans will be nudging up towards a trillion, count the zeros, there are 12 of them, uh, a, a trillion pounds uh, sterling. Hard for that not to be a source of discomfort when you own almost half of the government debt stock outstanding, 50% uh, of GDP. For a central bank balance sheet is a is an uncomfortable place to be and therefore i think you're thinking actively and early about how uh we can manage down that balance sheet in a way that doesn't upset the apple cart or disturb the recovery uh it's something we at the bank should give real priority priority to uh, starting uh pretty soon i worry i worry bronwyn that if we enter every crisis big and fast, as we did at the GFC, as we did at the COVID crisis, but always come out of that crisis in a very slow and sedate fashion, that builds a natural ratchet into central banks' balance sheets. It's a game you can play once, perhaps it's even a game you can play twice, but it's not a game you can play forever. Uh, and recognizing that, recognizing the limits of central bank's balance sheets, I think does call for acting early and acting purposefully uh, on those balance sheets, not least to give us room we might need to use next time around. Thanks for that. Back on the inflation question, there's one from Tom Rees from the Daily Telegraph saying, you've been the only dissenting vote on the Monetary Policy Committee at recent meetings. A central bank is too relaxed about the inflation risk and ignoring lessons previously learned on inflation. You've touched on this, but I think people, judging from the questions, would like a bit of expansion on that. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a spectrum of views, you know, across the MPC. There's a spectrum of views across central banks on the extent of this uh, inflation risk. And I'm probably towards the end of that, um, that spectrum, both, both on the MPC and, and possibly even globally uh, as well. Um, for me, that's the right place to be. Um, given our primary mandate uh, is inflation and, and given the uncertainties uh, that necessarily exist about what path it might take next. It's certainly uh, possible, certainly plausible in fact, that the sort of price pressures we are now seeing coming down the pipeline could indeed uh, prove transient that as we enter next year that those uh, pressures fizzle away perhaps as growth fizzles away. That's certainly possible, certainly plausible. The question is, uh, is that a, a risk we should be running at this stage of the cycle? Is the degree uh, of risk of a higher inflation outcome sufficiently high that we might wish, uh, as I say, to, to nip that uh, in the bud? And that's where you know, the judgments across the NPC and the judgments across central banks uh, currently differ. What I would say, uh, 
uh, is that people's minds are moving. And the reason people's minds are moving is because the data is moving. We have seen over the course of the last several months, both the economy surprising consistently to the upside uh, and price pressures in the economy surprising significantly to the upside. If that run of positive surprises to both activity, demand and to inflation were to continue over the next few months, I think you could see a few more minds changing and the balance of opinion within central banks uh, changing with it. That'll be for them rather mm. than for me, but I would say watch this space pretty closely given how quickly uh, the ground is moving between, beneath our feet. Thanks very much. Okay, I'm going to pick up one from Tony Cox now saying, what is likely to have the biggest long-term impact on the UK economy, COVID or Brexit? Um, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, um, we, we have we've spent many a happy hour, as you know, Bronwyn, thinking about the long-term consequences of Brexit, uh, not least for the trading position uh, of the UK. And indeed, those assumptions are built in to our projections of the future economy. In fact, they've been built into our projections of the economy uh, for several uh, several years now. And, you know, it'd be no surprise to anyone on, the, on this call to hear that, you know, overall the effects of Brexit will be to slim the degree of uh, trade within the uh, EU and therefore to chip away a little bit uh, the UK economy's productive uh, potential, its supply side potential. I think when it comes to COVID, there's a much more open question actually. Um, I mean, early on, the fears, rightly, were that COVID could have a, a lasting impact, a scarring impact on the economy's supply side potential, perhaps because people were lost their job and could not refine work, or perhaps because businesses failed to invest and never played catch up in their degree of uh, capex. Both of those scarring risks, those damaging effects on the long-term supply side of the economy, I think have, have, have been mitigated very materially, not least as a result of the policy action we've taken. In fact, one of the reasons we took that policy action at such scale, at such speed, was precisely to lower those long run scarring costs. If you like, if you like learning our lesson from the recessions of the early, early 80s, of the early 90s, and indeed at the time of the global financial uh, crisis. Mm. So much so, Bromwin, that as of now, you could easily tell uh, a much more positive story uh, about the supply side of the UK economy as we emerge from COVID. Let's take that one simple example. Uh, many of us, certainly myself, found ourselves pre-COVID doing the you know, one of the, the least productive forms of human activity ever invented, which is to say commuting. If we take at least some commuting, out of the equation, uh, that should enable us as workers to an average uh, be a bit more productive in the workplace than was the case uh, beforehand. If many more businesses are tooling themselves up for this digital era, that too should make them somewhat more productive. So I think it's plausible to think that COVID could even longer term deliver some supply side benefits, not scars, <laughs> but benefits to the economy. In that respect, it is, I would say, you know, different than what would certainly be our currently central view of the impact of Brexit. 
Thanks. I'm going to squeeze in two more on inflation um, without making this entirely a conversation about inflation. Uh, one from Bancroft School saying uh, for reducing inflation at this point, would you recommend a fiscal response over a monetary response to reduce the shock on borrowing? And one from Jamie Joseph Morgan saying, is there really a shortage of goods to drive up inflation? Thanks for both those questions. So, thanks for both those questions. Um, on the Bancroft School one, I mean, um, one of the um, one of the things you're taught at the, at the, on your induction at the Bank of England, which in my case was, you know, almost exactly 32 years ago, was never talk about fiscal policy. It's someone else's job. It's one of the sort of unwritten rules of central banking. That if I start talking about fiscal policy, uh, fiscal policy makers, in other words, politicians, start talking about monetary policy, and that tends to end uh, badly. So um, I'll not comment on, you know, what fiscal response is appropriate for keeping the inflation uh, inflation in its box. Uh, what I could say is that the frontline response for, for tackling inflation though, should rightly stand with monetary policymakers, should rightly stand with monetary policy. Uh, that is our mandate. Um, if we don't hit our mandate, we are rightly uh, criticised uh, publicly. So the frontline response, the frontline response to COVID was fiscal rather than monetary, but the frontline response to inflation is right, rightly stands uh, with us at the Bank of England and the central banks uh, around the world. I forget the second part of that question, um, Bronwyn, I apologise. Um, I think we've... Um, Have you covered it? Are, are there, are there, is there a shortage of goods? Is oh, I mean, there are, um, and it's a pretty broadly based shortage of goods. I mean, um, it could be microchips, it could be bricks, it could be plasterboard, it could be uh, concrete, it could be calagas uh, cylinders, it's increasingly workers. So those are the pockets of excess demand I mentioned earlier on. Uh, I could have lengthened my list quite considerably. And what that's telling us is that we are moving from a regime of rather localised shortages and rather localised price pressures to a world of slightly more generalised shortages uh, and generalised uh, price pressures from pockets of excess demand to aggregate excess demand from temporary price spikes to perhaps more persistent price spikes. And those are among the reasons we've seen that if you speak to businesses right now for several, several months, you know, the, their number one issue has been the pipeline of cost pressures, which is very acute right now. And that's those cost pressures are working their way down the pipeline uh, into the, the, the prices that businesses charge themselves output from input prices to output prices and further on the pipeline like consumer prices and we now see those cost pressures showing up uh, on the high street and the shops uh, as well in the headline inflation rate as i say in the paper uh, put out today you know i can see inflation in the uk going through the gears from here and it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if by uh, by christmas uh, rates of CPI inflation in the UK um, are nearer 4% than they are to 3%. In other words, uh, well north uh, of our 2% target. Okay, let me just squeeze in one, and if I can, two more. Uh, one from Pam W, uh, who says about housing, often housing bubbles have begun with excess demand in central London and radiated out. Do you think post-COVID hybrid working of the type we've been discussing will significantly change demand for London housing? I think we're already seeing that. Um, 
as, as Pam mentioned, uh, the housing market um, on a pretty generalized basis is pretty tight across all parts of the country right now. That's why house prices, uh, house price inflation is in double digits. Um, barely a day goes by, uh, given our national obsession with house prices, without another report from someone else saying um, that conditions are uh, red hot. I think Nationwide was the latest this morning. Um, what's striking is that alongside a picture of general house price inflation, is that the pockets of inflation are um, are greatest not in the city centres but in some of the suburban and more rural parts of the country which suggests to me that some of that behavioural shift that Pam mentioned is going on that people are seeking out uh, places with a bit more space perhaps because they intend to spend uh, more time working from home rather than working uh, from work so that is that is underway uh, I think that has some distance to travel, both the, the heat in the housing market and the migration of that activity uh, to the burbs and beyond. Great. OK, I am going to squeeze in one more. Um, apologies to all the ones I can't get in. But um, there are several really around the question of the bank's independence and whether it will continue. There's one in particular from James Richardson of the National Infrastructure Commission saying, do you think the prospects for independent economic bodies like the bank or the Industrial Strategy Council are on the way up or the way down? But there's quite a collection of people interested in whether you what you make of the bank's independence at this point. And I have in mind a book written by uh, Paul Tucker, formerly of your parish, also now of the IFG board, called Unelected Power, um, about the battle that um, he felt the bank and others needed to make for legitimacy, making decisions which affect enormously people's lives, um, and yet being unelected in that position. Obviously, we've had a year of uh, indeed scientists and others making uh, decisions about what people do with their lives, but just in closing, your, your thoughts about how the standing of the bank's independence, I think, would um, would go down very well. Yeah, I mean, the, the bank I joined, Bronwyn, with a context, you know, the, the, the best single predictor of, of interest rate movements at the point I joined the bank uh, was not the outcomes for GDP and inflation. It was whether Mrs Thatcher, who was then prime minister, uh, had just lost a by-election. I mean, when that happened, you got the phone call the next day and interest rates were lowered. That's the world... Uh, I came into, the central banking world I came into. Uh, and it wasn't so different when it came to financial stability decisions as well. And, and I look at the world now, um, the world of financial stability, the world of monetary policy, the world of uh, bank regulation, um, all of which is underpinned uh, in statute by independent committees. And that world has been transformed for the better by dint of independence. So you expect me 30 years in to say I'm a great believer in institutions, which I am, uh, including, of course, the IFG, uh, as well as the Bank of England, um, uh, and a great believer in arm's length independent scrutiny by those institutions, either when commenting on policy like the IFG or when setting policy uh, like uh, the Bank of England. Um, no independence can be absolute. Um, the bank is actually independent, probably only a relatively narrow range of things. All of its mandates are set rightly by Parliament and therefore effectively uh, by the people. And in terms of safeguarding the bank's own independence, uh, the answer does lie in uh, what we do to engage with Parliament and what we do to engage with the people. And a big plank uh, of what I've done, tried to do over the last five to 10 years in particular, is to build stronger bridges to 
the public than the bank has ever had previously. And I mean all of the public, not just the ones with an earshot of the Bank of England, the City of London, but to every part and every corner of the UK. Ultimately, all institutions survive and thrive on the back of the strength of their social contract with parliamentarians, but crucially with the public. And the thing that will safeguard the Bank of England's independence looking ahead from now is safeguarding that social contract, nurturing those relationships, two-way relationships with people right across the UK. If we do that, then independence is in safe hands. If we don't, it is at risk. As things stand today, Bronwyn, that situation feels just a tad uncomfortable given the situation we find ourselves in in terms of central bank balance sheets and the economy. Uh, and if there were one thing looking ahead where I think there's more building to be done, it would be on that front. Thank you for that. And on that note, we are going to have to stop. Um, thank you very much for answering all those questions. And my apologies uh, to the, those I couldn't get in, but they're great questions. Thank you. Um, we look forward to seeing what you make of the RSA. And thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Bronwyn. Um, great to talk to you and look forward to continuing this conversation in my new incarnation.